When our kids were little, uh, my wise wife developed a really important phrase. It was heard often in the hallowed halls of our home. The phrase was this, partial obedience equals disobedience. <clears throat> Everyone in the auditorium, say it with me, including those who are under 18. Say it with me, please, all together. Partial obedience equals disobedience. You know most children learn in fits and partial starts. We take two steps forward, three steps backward. So it's no surprise that kids often do less than their best at chores or obey half-heartedly. Thus, my wife's brilliant rubric often repeated, partial obedience is disobedience. Of course, this doesn't merely apply to children, right? Every adult also needs reminded that the only obedience is full and complete obedience. Such is true for me, it is true for you, and it was most certainly true for Moses. Open your Bible to Exodus chapter 4, where Moses learns from my sweetheart. Um, seriously, Moses learns from the Lord, the full import of obedience. And by the way, the Lord is where my wife learned it as well. Moses learns that partial obedience is no obedience at all. Exodus chapter 4, let's pick it up in verse 18. Then Moses, I'll explain the context in a moment. Then Moses went back to his father-in-law, Jethro, and said to him, Please, let me return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they are still living. Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now in Midian, the Lord told Moses, Return to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you were dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took God's staff in his hand. Moses finally gets it. He finally starts to respond to the call. By the way, that's the, uh, that's the headline you find in your notes. You got a bulletin when you came in, right? Open it up. Look on the left-hand side. You'll see that headline, Moses finally starts to respond to the call. Moses goes to Reuel, also known as Jethro, and, and seeks his blessing. Now, to modern ears, what we just read sounds like a request for permission, right? But from what we know of Bronze Age culture, Moses isn't really dependent on Jethro's approval here. Most likely, he's instead seeking a blessing. After decades of living and working under the leadership of this wonderful man, this friend of God, Moses is ready to launch out on his own adventure of following Yahweh. This reminds me very much of the attitude that Jana and I had when we got engaged. When my sweetheart and I got engaged, we were adults. We were living independently of our parents, biblically and culturally. This is sometimes misunderstood. Biblically, we did not need their permission to get wed, okay? The Bible's very clear. The man and woman each leaves their home authority and they become an independent oneness, their own authority under the Lord. So even though we didn't biblically need permission, we still went and talked to our parents. You know why? We wanted a blessing. We, we, we respected our parents a lot and we desired their input. So first we went to talk to Jana's parents. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and they had a lot to say. It was, a, it was an extensive conversation. They had a lot to say about money. They had a lot to say about me. They had a lot to say about how little money I had or would ever have. They had a lot to say about how that concerned them for their daughter. They talked at length, and it was wonderful. It was very, very good input. We were very grateful. Wise people, we were thankful. Then we went and met with my parents, and, um, and we met with my parents, and we had... This is no exaggeration. We had just begun to say, we think God has bound us to where we should get wed. We think we should become one. This seems like the right thing to do in the Lord. We had just started that sentence when my dad interrupted and said, and I quote exactly, my father looked at me and said, now, do it now before she has time to get out of it. <laughs> True story. He still feels that way. 
that is exactly the kind of response that Moses gets from Jethro. You see, Jethro seems really excited for Moses to step out, to step out in faith, to follow God's call, to go to Egypt, free the Israeli slaves. He doesn't have any advice, although there could be some good advice. He just says, go, go with my blessing, which is what in peace means. Go, shalom, go in peace. And just in case you haven't been with us in this Exodus study, let me show you what's behind this scene. Okay, let's back way up. Moses was reared in the Egyptian court until he killed an Egyptian because he found him beating a Hebrew slave. Moses then fled to Midian where he met this guy, Jethro, Reuel, uh, whose name Reuel, by the way, means friend of God. Reuel was almost certainly a nickname that was given to him because he was this wonderful man of God. He was a priest of Yahweh way out here in the wilderness. His other name, Jethro, it means excellence or, or profitable. Reuel taught Moses. He gave him a job. He gave him his daughter Zipporah in marriage. Then, next stage in the development of the book of Exodus, Yahweh himself spoke to Moses from the burning bush. He commissioned Moses to go back to Egypt and to rescue the Hebrews. Moses finally, at this point, at the end of chapter 4, he finally has submitted to God's call. After a lot of resistance, he has submitted to God's call. He's begun to obey. Okay, now at the end of chapter 4, we have this added encouragement from God that the people who had wanted Moses dead because of his earlier murder, they're themselves now gone. Reminds me of the time I went to a funeral. I remember this vividly. Went to a funeral with my grandfather. I was a little guy, and I asked my papa afterwards as we were at the reception time, and I said, Papa, why did everyone have only nice things to say about your friend? There was nothing but nice things to say. And he looked at me and he said, it's because that old coot outlived all his enemies. <laughs> it's great. Um, <clears throat> Moses, the old coot, has outlived all his enemies. He's about 80 years old here, but he's still going strong. All his enemies have passed. And notice the really humorous statement at the end of verse 20. Last time that he spoke with God, Moses apparently rushed off without the ordained staff that God had, had given him, and the Lord had to call him back for it. This time, Moses points out the staff is safely in his hand. It's a really fun observation, but it's not just a throwaway line. Guys, this is, this is a really important one. This little thing, the staff, it encapsulates the main idea we see so far in Exodus. Moses is finally getting it. He's finally learning full obedience. Speaking of obedience, God next goes over the Cliff's Notes of Moses' commission. All right, here's the big picture. Here's the Cliff Notes of Moses' commission, verses 21 to 23. The Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do all the wonders before Pharaoh that I put within your power, but I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. Stop there. Please notice the biggest idea here. God is sovereign. He's predicting what will happen. It is under his hand that all the coming events will unfold. This is very useful information for Moses as he starts out. God is sovereign. Just as it is useful information for Americans who are looking ahead to another election. God is in charge. Amen? Amen? And the balance of responsibility under God's oversight is fascinating. Look at this. Ten times Exodus, the book of Exodus, is going to tell us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. All right? Ten other times the text declares that God hardened his heart. Ten times Pharaoh hardens his heart. Ten times God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Do you see that? Fascinating balance. Now, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 9, 
The Apostle Paul uses this as an example of God's inscrutable will. Paul says that God's sovereignty cannot be limited, but neither can it be boxed in. God mercifully allows people to respond to Him, and He holds them accountable for how they respond to Him, even as He is completely in charge. It is both, my friends. Please don't let yourself miss the whole picture. Exodus wants you to see it. God hardens Pharaoh, and Pharaoh refuses God's word on his own. It is both. How do the two fit together? Only God knows. His ways are not his ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But both are true. Second big issue is this summary, in this summary of Moses' Egypt expedition, concerns this idea of a firstborn son. You see that? In all ancient peoples, the firstborn son is considered special. He is the gift of the gods continuing the family. This was especially true in Egyptian thought, possibly more so than any other people group. The firstborn son in Egypt was so special, he was, he was almost considered sacred. Playing on this thought, Yahweh proclaims this message for Egypt, let my son alone or I will take out your son. God sees Israel as his firstborn son, and he will accomplish his plans for those who are his. And literally, this discussion of sons sets up the next episode. Go to verse 24 through 26. On the trip, they're heading toward Egypt, at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and sought to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and threw it at Moses' feet. Then she said, you were a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. The background here is the great sign of the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision. And the big idea, as we say on the right side of our notes, the big idea is that God deals with disobedience. God deals with disobedience. The Abrahamic covenant is summarized in a picture of circumcision. By the way, circumcision is not required for Gentiles who later join into Abraham's covenant by faith in Messiah Jesus. But circumcision was required for all Hebrews. The Abrahamic covenant is a spiritual covenant. It's about a spiritual life by faith. It's all about faith. But it has an important physical identification, circumcision. You can ask your parents at home what that is. Circumcision is so important to the Lord as a picture of this covenant that he said he could take the physical life of anyone who rejects this circumcision sign of the covenant. Look, here's how God stated it to Abraham and his offspring forever. Genesis 17, this is my covenant which you are to keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every one of your males must be circumcised. Verse 14, if any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Close quote. Understand? It's not talking about when they're a child. When someone grows up, if their parents didn't do what they were supposed to do, that person will be cut off. Literally, that's a euphemism for it. They can be killed. That's the story behind Exodus chapter 4. Moses apparently never had his son Gershom, his oldest son, his firstborn son, circumcised. At this point, Gershom is no longer a boy. Guys, he has to be in his 30s. His circumcision is an important deepening of Moses' life before God. Look, here's think of the context. Thanks to Yahweh's correction in a number of different scenes in chapters 3 and 4, Moses has begun to deal with his active disobedience to God. He's addressed his active rebellion where he refused to go, to go to Egypt earlier. Now the Lord is taking Moses' development further. They're digging back into his past and into his sins of omission. 
Not circumcising, think about it. It's not so much an shake your fist active kind of sin. Not circumcising your child is more like a sin of omission. And sadly, this fits everything we've seen from Moses so far. His intentions are good, but his obedience is very sloppy. A friend of mine was thinking through this passage the other day. He wrote me a haunting note. He wrote me and said, Wayne, knowing that I was teaching this, he said, Wayne, I have never looked at my sins of omission quite the same as my outward ones. Maybe Moses was like that as well. Close quote, right? Can't we all relate? But God means what he says, and God takes all sin seriously, both active and omission. The truth is Moses has blown it, and Zipporah saves the day. Now, the question everybody asks uh, is, who is being threatened with death? Verse 24, right? Verse 24 doesn't specifically say. Some scholars think it's Moses being threatened with death, and here's the main reason. It's because of the parallels with Jonah. And, and those are significant. Look, look up here at the screens. Jonah and Moses are lined up in the Scripture as very, very parallel, reluctant prophets, right? And since God put an appropriate death sentence on Jonah for disobedience from which he was rescued, it seems possible that Exodus 4.24 is showing a parallel judgment on Moses' person. But other Bible scholars note that Genesis 17.14 declares death as a punishment for the grown son, Right? So they say Gershom is threatened with death here because he has not been circumcised. Personally, and it doesn't really matter, but personally, I find the Gershom argument more compelling. I think he's the one being threatened with death. Either way, the lesson's the same. Moses does not have his house in order. He doesn't. He has been sloppy in living out who he is as a child of God in Abraham's faith covenant. I'm especially impressed that Moses tells this story on himself. This is not a flattering story at all. Cindy Sharp of our pulpit team observed in a note that she sent me, she said, Moses' honesty about his failings is remarkable. I can't think of many famous world leaders who would do the same. Of course, many of us have similar stories to tell, don't we? I prayed for us this week, and I know I pray for us every week, but I prayed specifically this week that this passage would be extremely convicting. You see, when you talk about circumcision, here's what happens. All the women in the room look uncomfortable, and all the men do this over and over and over. <laughs> That's what happened. And they get all distracted and they miss the point. And my prayer was that you and I would not miss the point, that we would look at our own lives here in our own Midian. And the truth is that we get so busy with all the stuff of life that we often do a very poor job living out our God relationship by faith in the physical reality of our home. We pay the bills and we do the deals. We even coach the kids' teams, but our children cannot remember the last time that our family prayed and read Scripture together. Right? We get the kids to piano practice and special French lessons and select team tournaments and everything else, but the family's only in church maybe, what, twice a month? And the, people, and the people who do what I do are often worse. Pastors, like Moses, they're set on a, on a difficult and obedient mission in ministry, but sometimes pastors are notorious for limiting their effectiveness because they have neglected their own homes. We don't pastor our own family. God graciously warns Zipporah about the danger of not having their house in order. We aren't told how he warns her, and she leaps into the action that her husband should have taken years earlier. By the way, she would likely have been very familiar with this procedure. Um, theirs wasn't covenantal like the Hebrews, but the Midianites did practice circumcision, uh, so Zipporah knew what to do. Look, she even used a flint knife, just as God had commanded uh, Abraham. By contrast, the Egyptians practiced it's kind of disgusting. The Egyptians practiced a weird thing back in those days called a partial circumcision. 
Uh, I don't need to describe it. Let me just tell you. Joshua chapter 5 calls it the reproach of Egypt. Okay, it's considered a reproach. It's very strange. In fact, all the other cultures in the world considered it strange even then. That may be what, what Moses did. He may, having grown up as an Egyptian, he may have done the reproach of Egypt kind of circumcision, or he did nothing at all. Hatan damim in verse 25. Look at verse 25. Hatan damim merely means relative of blood. Now, we call it bridegroom of blood because it's addressed most likely to Moses, but it just literally says relative of blood. Zipporah says this as she finishes the circumcision ceremony. There are a couple of translator issues here that really bug me, and you know I do not like picking on translators. They are smarter and wiser than I, but on occasion I feel the need to point out some problems, and there are problems here. Here's the biggest one. Preemptively assuming that modern English-speaking audiences cannot handle the real raw text that God gave us, Bibles today render this word, regale, regale, uh, right here, they render it as feet. Technically, the word is feet, but that is not what it means. No Hebrew thought of regale as feet. It's a Hebrew euphemism for genitals. Okay, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 16, look it up, same word used in the same way. It's technically feet, but that's not what, it's like a mom, I know this one mom, who all of her children's backsides she calls watermelon. Okay, that's just that's what she calls it. Sit on your watermelon, you know, and the kid goes and sits on his watermelon. If you were translating her family's conversation, you would not translate that, and the mother said to go sit on an American piece of large fruit. That is not what she means. You would translate it, she said, sit on her bottom. In the same way, Zipporah does not touch the severed foreskin to anyone's feet. It's, it's, it's part of one ancient way to do circumcision. You touch it to the genitals, and it is... Certainly Gershom that she does this to. Moses, second problem I have here, Moses is not mentioned in the text at all. He's not in verse 25. Modern translators confusingly add Moses' name. The Hebrew text merely says his. That's all it says. Now, that said, I do believe that Zipporah likely directed the comment, Hatam Damim, relative of blood. She directed that to her husband, and it's repeated in verse 26 for emphasis. The two of them really are truly one. We know that from Scripture. They're one in this produce of a son. They're united in the Lord. They are bound together by God's grace through a sacrifice of blood. She has rescued her family here just as surely as Moses rescued her years before at the well. Moses' family is thus finally in the right place for Moses to go fulfill his ministry. Again, the appropriate question to ask in response to this story is, am I in that place? Am I ready for God's mission in my life? Is my family in the place they need to be for me to do what God has put before me to do? God has always provided everything necessary for life and godliness. Have I partnered with him and responded to him to get my house in order? Sadly, though, that is not the question most people ask. I read a lot. I read scholarly stuff, I read pop culture, and most writers today are united in discussing only one response to this passage. Here's the only question anybody asks about this passage. How could God be so mean? How could God be so unloving and judgmental, right? You go tell your friends at work or at school that we studied Exodus 4, and they go read the passage, that's what they're going to ask you. I know, I know. They're just trying to duck the real issue. They're trying to duck their own disobedience to God, of course. Of course, their question is just a smokescreen because people ask questions to keep from having to look at their own sin. I understand that, but it's still a question you need to be able to answer. It's actually not a bad question. So look at the wonderful response you see there copied on the right side of your notes. Dr. Gerald May is an expert on addiction recovery, 
And he has learned that healthy people, healthy people look at their own sin instead of railing against the unfairness of the system. Healthy people look at themselves instead of railing against God's righteous wrath. In fact, Dr. May wisely knows that God's love must include his wrath, otherwise it's not honest love. Look, look, look what he says. God goes on loving us regardless of who we are or what we do. This does not mean God is like a permissive parent who makes excuses and ignores the consequences of a child's behavior. Such permissiveness, listen, that is more cowardly than loving. That is more cowardly than loving because it devalues the child's capacity for dignity and responsibility. In God's constantly respectful love, the consequences of our actions are very real, and they can be horrible, and we are responsible. But even when our choices are destructive and their consequences hurtful, God's love remains unwavering. All God's people said. Thus, regardless of our own insulation and defensiveness, God is constantly open and vulnerable to us. God is joyful when we are joyful and when we bring joy to others. God hurts when we are hurting and when we hurt others. Such is the constancy of God's love, close quote. Far from unloving or unfair, Yahweh is committed here to the holiness of his child, and that is real love. That's real love. Moses and Zipporah and Gershom, who, by the way, had to agree to all this, they're finally in line with that kind of love. Now, likely because of Gershom's recovery, Exodus 18 indicates that Moses, at this point, sends his family back to Jethro's compound in Midian. Uh, so probably alone, Moses goes to Egypt. Let's pick up the story there. The Israeli leaders there initially respond really well. They respond well. Take a look, verse 27. Now, the Lord had said to Aaron, Go and meet, that's Moses' older brother, three years older. The Lord had said to Aaron, go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountains of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the signs he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. The people believed. And when they heard the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. They bowed down and worshiped. few significant observations to make here. First thing, notice the contrast with Moses. Do you see that? Aaron obeys perfectly. I, I, I picture Moses in his head hearing his mother saying, why can't you be more like your brother, right? <laughs> Seriously, it is really, really cool how perfectly Aaron obeys. Look, he does everything God asks. He does everything the prophet Moses instructs. It's kind of a welcome relief at this point in the book of Exodus. That, that obedience... Is very much contrasted with Moses' disobedience up to this point. And that obedience of Aaron and Moses is what helps them lead wisely. You cannot exercise authority until you have learned to live under authority. Look what they do. They meet first with the duly appointed elders of each tribe. They build their base of support, basing it on God's word, not their own personality. Then they interact with the larger assembly. That is exactly how you would line it out if you were giving them a management exercise uh, practice for an MBA. It's perfectly done. And it's successful. Notice the elders believe that people respond to God's words. They respond to the signs. This is one of those incredibly moving moments in human history where everyone does just what they're supposed to do. It's like the opposite of a soap opera, right? Everyone does what they're supposed to do. The people even bow down and worship. It's so cool. They recognize the only right response to God's gracious care for us is to fall before him in worship. America recently celebrated a National Police Week. Some of you are police officers. 
uh, as are many of my friends in other places. And, and you know, you who are policemen know, it's not selfish pride. It's appropriate. It is appropriate for people to thank the police for, for their gracious care for our safety. It's right. In a similar way, it is only right to praise God for His understanding and His provision. If you appreciate human servants, you surely must thank God. After all, He's not merely a human. He's not fallible like humans are. He doesn't even get paid. But He still graciously cares, and that is worthy of praise. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. David Barnes, our church facilities director, sent me a great thought about this. Look what David wrote to me. He said, when the people heard that their Lord had heard their cries and cared for them, they bowed their heads in reverence and worshipped Him. I guess we forget how much our Savior truly loves us. When this happens, our worship for him diminishes. It does. It is so important for me to try to continually keep the thought of God's love, and remember everything we said about God's love. It has to include justice or it's not love. I keep God's love for us in the forefront of my mind so that everything I do is in worship of him, close quote. Now, sadly, Aaron and the Israeli leaders will not keep on so healthily. In fact, folks, this is, this is their high watermark in responding to God. I want to show you a little contrast here because Moses, in contrast to Aaron and the Israeli leaders, Moses, who starts so slowly, from this point on, he gets more and more and more and more obedient through his life. Moses' vision grows ever more full of God's love so that all he does, it's true, all he does is in worship of Yahweh. It's not very long after this that Aaron and the Israeli elders are going to be worshiping a golden calf. This contrast matters. Remember, it is not where you start that is most important. It matters how we keep growing and how we finish. Keep that in mind, especially those of you graduating in a few days. Now, I know we've learned a lot today, but but the thought segment actually continues. And some of you know this. I'm convinced the best way to study the Bible is according to the literary thought sections as God gave it to us in literature. And and this thought section actually continues. It's kind of fascinating. It ends at chapter 5, verse 21, leaving you on a little cliffhanger. All right, so we're going to go and leave on that cliffhanger the way God wrote the text. So we'll stop at that paragraph, but let's read up to it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, Who is Yahweh, that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I do not know anything about Yahweh. Besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they answered, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three-day trip to the wilderness, so we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, or else he may strike us with plague or sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your work. Pharaoh also said, look, the people of the land are so numerous, and you would stop them from working. That day, Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people, as well as their foremen, don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks, as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves, but require the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they're slackers. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Impose heavier work on the men. Then they'll be occupied with it and not pay attention to deceptive words. So the overseers and foremen of the people went out and said to them, this is what Pharaoh says, I'm not giving you straw. Go get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but there'll be no reduction at all in your workload. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The overseers insisted, finish your assigned work each day, just as you did when straw was provided. Then the Israelite foreman 
whom Pharaoh's slave drivers had set over the people. These are Israelis. They were beaten and asked, why haven't you finished making your prescribed number of bricks yesterday or today as you did before? So the Israelite foreman went in and cried for help to Pharaoh. Why are you treating your servants this way? No straw has been given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. Look, your servants are being beaten, but it's your own people who are at fault. But he said, you are slackers. That's why you're saying, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must produce the same quantity of bricks. The Israelite foreman saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you cannot reduce your daily quota of bricks. When they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron, who stood waiting to meet them. May the Lord take note of you and judge, they said to them, because you've made us reek in front of Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. And the paragraph stops there. Moses and Aaron engage Pharaoh. We're supposed to feel this tension and this engagement. Next time, we'll see how it begins to unwind. We're going to cover this fairly quickly today as all, a lot of these details will be, reappear later. There are some wonderful things to learn here in chapter 5. First, we're introduced to the key phrase. Look at, look at the text. Here is the key phrase in Moses' encounters with Pharaoh. Every one of his encounters centers on this phrase, let go, right? In other words, Moses is bursting out in his best Elsa voice, right? And he's singing, let it go, let it go. That, that, that's what he's doing here. Look at verse 3. They aren't even asking to be freed from slavery. All they're requesting is a chance to go worship Yahweh with sacrifices. It's only going to take three days. One day to travel out away from the Nile, away from the center of population. One day to have the worship time and one day to travel back. The Egyptian people had many, many, many national holidays, all kinds of religious holidays that the Israelis were not allowed to, to participate in. They had to work through them. They're just asking for one three-day holiday. And by the way, they need to travel away from the population center, and here's why. The Egyptians, you may know this, the Egyptians considered cows sacred. And the Hebrews are going to sacrifice a whole lot of cows when they worship Yahweh. To sacrifice cows near the Egyptian cities would have started a riot, just like it would if you did so in India today. Notice Pharaoh will not even allow them to go worship. This is very crafty of God. He fully intends to set these people free. We know that. But first, he wants to expose how incredibly unreasonable and reactionary the king of Egypt is. There's a few members of this church that are constitutional lawyers. They would call this a good case. Um, whenever they tell me they've got a good case, I know that means they've got one where the opposition is so unreasonable that you can use the confrontation with them to shake up the world. Exposing their ugliness causes the whole world to reassess what have been bad assumptions. For example, 60 years ago in this country, a black woman could not ride in the front of a city bus. When Rosa Parks exposed that unreasonable practice, it forced an entire culture to rethink a lot of assumptions. That's what Moses and Aaron are doing by asking for a religious holiday. And Pharaoh refuses, showing himself to be really unreasonable and setting himself up for a great fall. This is brilliant storytelling. Notice yet another crossed trajectory is here. Do you notice that? Look, the Hebrews express concern that they must be obedient to Yahweh or they will face consequences. Do you see that? Moses is learning. He's learned that, that scene with Gershom in the desert has taught Moses. He knows that God's love involves his justice. It has to or it's not love. So they're serious about God. Pharaoh is not. He mockingly declares, I know no Yahweh. As a result, his people and only his people are going to face the consequences that Israel had feared. In an amazing lie, Pharaoh even claims he knows nothing of Yahweh. And that is a complete untruth we know given the history of his country. But this amazing self-deception will not 
last. Just read ahead and you will see. In the meantime, Pharaoh, from a human point of view, he seems to win round one of the engagement, right? Round one of the, of the law engagement with Aaron and Moses seems to go Pharaoh's way. His paranoia is inflamed at the sight of these Hebrews now suddenly worshiping Yahweh with expectation. So he reacts with an ugly trap that succeeds. It succeeds. It turns the Hebrews against Moses and Aaron. The people are mad at them. First thing he does, Pharaoh labels the Israelis as slackers. By the way, this is always a very nifty idea. If you want to be ugly and manipulative in culture wars, you always try to label the other side with some ugly name. Uh, in our day and age, you put phobic on the end of something, uh, whether that's accurate or not. You try and label them because if you can label them, you think that you have a very good chance of winning the public opinion war. Whoever wins the word war usually wins the public opinion war. The king is brilliant here. He makes it impossible for the Hebrews to fulfill their quotas. And then he springs this trap through intermediaries. Now, think about it. This is so smart. Instead of doing it publicly, it is through intermediaries. That way, the Hebrews who are working as overseers, when it all fleshes out and they realize what's going on, they're going to turn against Moses and Aaron instead of against Pharaoh. This is evil genius at work here, folks. It really is. By the way, this is one of the best parts of Cecil B. DeMille's movie. He brought out the king's petulant evil genius very, very nicely in the Ten Commandments. Of course, it helped that he had the greatness of Yul Brenner acting for him. Um, but as we're going to see later, whatever it looks like on the surface, Pharaoh isn't really winning anything. Not anything. And even this nasty twist by Pharaoh is part of God's plan. It is part of his sovereign preparation of Moses. It's all about how he's preparing Moses. And that same truth applies to you and to me. Christians, in our dispensation, think, think, what are your leadership challenges? Where are you facing nasty traps set by very crafty and mean people? What unfair criticism is flying at you? Which of your plans are just not working out? Right? You can think of many. And God says, fret not. Remember, remember. God told us Christians it would be this way. As surely as he gave the Cliff Notes overview to Moses about how it would go in Egypt, he promised us, Jesus said, you will have trouble in this world all because of your relationship to me. But it's all worth it. And I've read the end of the story. It all works out in freedom and victory. And even the pains along the way are all part of Yahweh shaping us to do his will. It's part of Yahweh shaping history for his glory and the blessing of people. It's something Psalm 94 brings out really beautifully. I'd like you to read this with me, and in fact, I think it's so powerful you have to stand. Boys and girls, take your Bible down. Stand up if you would. Let's read together from Psalm 94. You read the underlined text, starting in verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. Do you see that? It's, part, it's all part of how he's working his plan. It's a blessing, even, even though it hurts. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. If I should say, my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O oh Lord, will hold me up. That, you, you know this, right? When you see loving kindness, uh, particularly in the New American Standard Translation, that's a great Hebrew word, hesed. 
that we've talked about a number of times, one of the most beautiful words ever in human history. It's a covenant word that doesn't translate well in our language. It, it means a relationship that cannot and will not be broken. It means, it means a love that is so full of kindness that it has the other's best interest and will always, always work it out for best for that person. That's what hesed means. Your loving kindness holds me up, all God's people said. When my anxious thoughts multiply, I know none of you can relate to this, but just suppose. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Father, I thank you for these men and women, boys and girls, and the privilege of getting to study the Bible together. And I beg you that we will keep, every one of us will keep engaged with you. I pray that we'll keep engaged with your world. You have not released us from Egypt. You still want us to speak your truth in love. I pray that through all the pain of this life, and, and they are many, the pains of this life, that your consolations will delight our souls because of your hesed. Father, I pray that we will respond to that with a confidence and a calmness that allows us to partner with you in getting our lives in order so we can be ever more effective for you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated.